The following audio is from Acts Church in Leander, Texas. More information about Acts is available at actschurchleander.com. All right, well, we are in the midst of a series called How to Pick a Fight. And uh, in this series, we've been looking at the stories of, of men and women in Scripture who, who picked a fight, who picked a fight when it mattered most, who stood up uh, for something at the, at the right time and in the right place. And, and so we, we've looked at kind of these, these major figures in the Bible. We looked at Jonathan a couple weeks ago. Last week, we looked at, at Noah. Next week, we're going to look at Esther. Uh, but this week, we're going to look at our boy Moses and, and the fight that he picked. And one of the things that we see in this story with Moses is that uh, Moses finds himself in a fight that ends up being way more than he bargained for. He finds himself in a fight that, that was, was not what he was expecting, was much larger than what he thought he'd be accomplishing in his life. Uh, and, and I don't know if any of you have ever been there, if you ever found yourself in a fight that was much bigger than you signed up for. Um, I got one too, all right. Uh, but, but it happens, right? It happened to a, a few of us this summer, uh, this past July. So our, our church does what we call sending weekends, uh, which is where on the weekend we have an abbreviated worship gathering and, and instead spend our time that weekend out in our community and, and serving our community in, in some tangible ways. And, and one of our, our service projects was uh, to dig post holes uh, for a community garden uh, at the Twin Lakes, or near the Twin Lakes YMCA, uh, Twin Lakes Resource Center there. And uh, they wanted us to dig 24 post holes uh, 24 inches into the ground, two feet into the ground, okay? And, uh, and I thought, all right, so we got a crew of like 15 people, and, I, and we got 24 holes. I'm like, we can probably knock this out in a couple hours, right? was very wrong, very wrong, right? Because six inches underneath the soil on this side of I-35, what do you run into? Limestone, man, limestone. It is not moving anywhere, right? And, uh, and to be fair, I, I, I knew that was there, okay? And I've lived here a couple years. I know it's there. But um, I, so, so I, I bought a couple rock bars, and uh, we rented two jackhammers, and it just wasn't enough, man. It was not enough. I, I, I still have this... Uh, this vision in my head after effort, well, first of all, after an hour and a half of digging, hour and a half of digging, we had dug two holes 15 inches down. Two holes 15 inches down after an hour and a half of digging. And I remember I have this image in my head of, of uh, Chris Stanley, who's, who's part of our church, and he's just like manhandling this jackhammer and just like going to town. And, and, he, and he took it out, and I was like, oh my gosh, can't wait to see. I bet he made it all the way. And he took the jackhammer out, and he took the measuring tape, and he looked up, he's like, I lost two inches. Like, how did that happen? You know, like, how on earth does that happen? And, and so it was brutal, man. It was, this, it was a much bigger fight than we signed up for. And so we finally, man, we threw in the towel. We called it quits and we said, you know what? We're just going to pay a guy who's got the proper equipment to do this. And so we were all just, those of us that were working on that site, we're just going to chip in the money. It was going to be about 300 bucks. And, and we're going to have a guy come out and, and just take care of business for us. And so that was the plan that, that we were just all going to chip in. Well, the next day I woke up. And I got an email, and it was from an 18-year-old kid in Minnesota who, who I used to mentor at a church I used to work at up there. And he said, hey, Gabe, um, you know, I've saved up a, a special offering, and, and I want to give it to your church. Uh, do you guys have anything going on right now that I can help out with? If I got a deal for you, right? And I said, well, you know, how much have you saved up? And he goes, $500. 18-year-old kid in Minnesota saved up $500. And I said, well, hey, we're trying to dig these fence posts to help our community out get this garden going. It's going to give fresh, fresh produce to people in need, and, and so we, we'd love to do that. And he said, oh, sure, no problem. Cuts the check, sends it to us the next day. Right? Now, I love that story, right? Like, how awesome is that, right? It's, it's true, but, but if you're like me, that, that story is almost too good to be true, right? Like, it's, it's almost too easy. It's too convenient. 
right? Like we're in a fight bigger than we can handle. We're, we're in the midst of something that, that we just can't figure out. And the next day I wake up, get an email and boom, it's taken care of, right? God provides, God shows up, he makes it happen. But it doesn't always happen that way, does it? It doesn't always happen that way, that there's times when we find ourselves in fights that are much bigger than we could imagine. We find ourselves facing problems that are much larger than we can imagine. And this is where we find Moses. Moses is in, in the midst of a, a problem, of a strife, of a struggle that, that is huge, bigger fight than he can imagine, and God shows up in a radical way. And so let me just give you a little background to Moses and, and where we're at in the story. Uh, so the, the people of God in the Old Testament are, are the Israelites, and they are enslaved in Egypt, and, uh, and they're slaves in Egypt, and, and what happens is uh, the Egyptian pharaoh notices, hey man, these guys are really multiplying. Uh, they may overthrow us, there's so many of them. And so he, he starts a genocide, and an infanticide, and he kills any baby boy uh, that's born who's an Israelite. So every baby boy that's born that's an Israelite, he kills him. He doesn't want them to overthrow his power, and so he kills him. But there's one Israelite woman who gives birth to a son, to a baby boy, and she wants to save his life. And so she, she puts him in a, in a little um, basket and floats him down a river. And sure enough, uh, this baby boy finds his way to, of all people, by God's providence, Pharaoh's daughter. And Pharaoh's daughter picks him up out of the water and names him Moses. And through another weird working of God's providence, Moses actually ends up being raised by his biological mother. Uh, and, and so he knows he's an Israelite, but he's also raised with the advantages and the education of an Egyptian. And so he's got these two identities going on in his life as he grows up. He's sort of torn between this tension of all the privileges he's had because he was found by Pharaoh's daughter and so he gets the Egyptian privileges, but his identity as an Israelite with his people who's, who he's blood related to. And so he has this tension going on. And in one moment you see this sort of bubble up completely where there's an Egyptian slave master beating an Israelite slave and, and Moses just loses it. And he says, I, I'm just taking matters in my own hands. This isn't right. I can't handle it. And so he kills this Egyptian. And he tries to cover it up, but he doesn't do a very good job. Pharaoh finds out, wants him killed. The Israelites get all ticked at him because uh, now their work is twice as hard as it was before. And they say, dude, why are you fighting like this? It's just not helping anyone. And so Moses freaks out, and he runs away into the wilderness. And he meets a man named Jethro, who has seven daughters. <whistles> seven daughters. And, uh, and, and Moses marries one of them. And, and they have a kid, and then Moses goes, and he's a shepherd for his father-in-law, and he takes care of Jethro's sheep. And you kind of got to imagine that for Moses, this is kind of it. Like, this is, this is his life now. He's married, he's got a kid, he's, he's, uh, he's shepherding his father-in-law's sheep. That's just kind of how he's going to spend his days, that he's just going to take care of sheep the rest of his life. But we see what happens in our text is Moses, while he's shepherding sheep on the backside of nowhere, a bush starts on fire, and it isn't consumed. And Moses said, well, this is weird. And so he goes to check it out, and it turns out that it's God's presence. That God has shown up, and he's got a message for Moses. And that's what I want us to dig into today, is that God's message for Moses, what does he say to him? And there's three parts we'll see, all right? We'll see in God's message that God has a mission, that Moses has a role in that mission, and that God is real. God's mission, Moses' role, God is real. All right, so let's get going. Look with me. Let's look at the first part, God's mission. God's speaking to Moses, and he says this, starting at verse 7. Then the Lord said, I have surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt, 
and have heard their cry because of their taskmasters. I know their sufferings, and I have come down to deliver them out of the hand of the Egyptians and to bring them up out of that land to a good and broad land, a land flowing with milk and honey, to the place of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites. And now behold, the cry of the people of Israel has come to me, and I have also seen the oppression with which the Egyptians oppressed them. And so let's just notice a, a few things uh, about uh, God's mission here. If you can go back one slide for me, Tyler. And, and uh, two slides for me. <laughs> in verse 7, it says, Then the Lord said, I have surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt and have heard their cry. So we see that God sees and hears the affliction of his people. But we see at the end of verse 7 that he takes it a step further. What does he say? He says, I know their sufferings. I know their sufferings. And the word for know there, I've talked about this word before, is a Hebrew word, yada. And it's not just like an intellectual no. It's not just like, those people over there are suffering, right? No, it's, it's, a, it's a deep emotional connection. It's, it's a heart knowledge. God's in the midst of their suffering. He knows their suffering. He yada's their suffering. You say, okay, well, why does that matter? Why are you all excited about that, Gabe? It's one word. Why does that matter? It matters because it means that Peter Van Houten was wrong. Who's Peter Van Houten? He's a fictional author in the book and movie, The Fault in Our Stars. Has anyone seen that? Read it? Okay, excellent. If you haven't, highly recommend it. You'll be sobbing the whole time. So good. Um, But anyways, he's he's this uh, fictional author. And the way the story goes is there's two teenagers who have terminal cancer. And, And they travel all the way from Indianapolis to Amsterdam to meet with Peter Van Houten, who's their favorite author. And they want to ask this guy questions about his book, some questions they have as follow-up. And it turns out that he's a total jerk. And he doesn't respond to any of their questions. And they say, hey man, why? Like, why won't you just answer these questions for us? And, and basically the reason he gives is because he says, listen, you guys are sick kids, you're terminally ill kids, and so the whole world pities you. And he says, I refuse to do that. I'm just not going to do that. And he says this, I just want to read you a, a direct quote from the book. He says this, like all children, he answered dispassionately, you say you don't want pity. But your very existence depends upon it. In reality, you are a side effect, Van Houten continued, of an evolutionary process that cares little for individual lives. You are a failed experiment in mutation. Now see, this is why verse 7 matters. This is why verse 7 matters. Because if there isn't a God who's actually invested in his creation, if there isn't a God who actually cares for his people and hears their sufferings and hears their cries, then Van Houten is right. Sickness and death and injustice and brokenness and slavery are all just a part of an evolutionary process that cares very little for individual lives. This is why verse 7 matters, but our text says God saw the affliction of his people. God knew their sufferings, which means your struggles, your afflictions, your pains, your problems, they aren't pointless. They aren't meaningless. means there's a God who hears you, who sees you, who's invested in you, who knows you you. And that may sound like, well, that's a very nice sentiment, Gabe. That's very nice. But its application is actually outrageously important. It's outrageously important because it means that as you face whatever problems or struggles you have in your life, you're not doing it alone. I was talking with a lady who's uh, part of our church, 
and she teaches special needs children. And, and she was sharing with me um, about this uh, one student that she works with. She, she teaches him math for two hours every day, which is like, oh, right, math. Ugh. And uh, for two hours every day, and, and he's, he's got a, a pretty severe mental disability, and he also has uh, cystic fibrosis. And now, that's not going to be an easy job, right? Like, that is hard work. That is frustrating. That is pouring into someone again and again and again, over and over, a repeated time. And it's doing all of that towards a relatively uncertain future for this child. And yet, it matters, does it not? And yet, there's dignity in that. And our text tells us that God gets that. That God's in the midst of that. That in that struggle, he knows what's going on. He's in the midst of it. And so do you see how that would shape how this lady engages her work? Do you see how that would shape how this teacher engages her work? That she's not alone? That the creator God who hears the cries of the suffering, who knows the afflictions of his people, is in this fight with her, is with this family, is with this boy? There's purpose in it. God knows the suffering. What's even better about God's mission is that we see not only does he, he recognize and, and empathize in the suffering of his people, but we see that he actually does something about it. He does something about it. Verse 8, he says he's going to deliver Israel out of the hand of the Egyptians and bring them up out of that land to a good and broad land, a land flowing with milk and honey. And so it's not, God's not content to just pat us on the head and say, oh man, it's really tough. No, God delivers, he rescues, he saves, he gets stuff done. But we see that as God pursues his missions, he has a way that he does that. And the way he does that is through his people. And so he brings Moses in on the process. And we see that Moses has a role. Look with me at verses 10 through 12. Come, I will send you to Pharaoh, that you may bring my people, the children of Israel, out of Egypt. But Moses said to God, who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the children of Israel out of Egypt? He said, but I will be with you. And this shall be the sign for you that I have sent you. When you have brought the people out of Egypt, you shall serve God on this mountain. Now, I love this part of the story because we saw in the, the earlier verses, like God very clearly says, he's like, hey, I've heard the cries of my people and I'm going to deliver them. But then he says to Moses, I will send you to Pharaoh to bring my people out. I love that, right? Like, like God says, I'm going to rescue them. You better get going and rescue those people, Moses. Right? Like, what's the deal with that? That's how God works, right? That's how God works. He hears the cries of the afflicted. He hears the cries of those who, who suffer physically and who suffer mentally and those who are burdened by guilt and shame and those who cannot escape the sin that's inside of their life. He hears the cries of the afflicted and then he does something about it. He acts, but he acts through his people. Thanks, brother. He acts through you, through the church. And this is something we talk about a lot here. This idea that, that God has a mission and he, he has a role for you in it and he's, he sent you in it. And I wonder though, has that sunk in for you? Is that something real for you? Or do you, like Moses, make excuses? God says, I'm sending you and Moses says this, who am I that I should do this? Do you make excuses? Do you say, well, God can use other people to take care of that. That sounds really hard. That's a little bit outside of my comfort zone. Uh, that's not really for me. I'm too busy. I don't know enough about the Bible. I'm too old. I'm too young. Whatever. 
We've all got excuses to opt out of God's mission, but what's God's answer to Moses and what's God's answer to us? Verse 12. But I will be with you. But I will be with you. And what that tells me is, you're nervous about God's mission, you feel ill-equipped to pursue it, good. God never expected you to do it on your own anyways. That's the best place to start. See, that's the thing with pursuing God's mission is it doesn't start with me saying, all right, what am I good at? What am I going to do to to work really hard at and and do this? No, it starts with me saying, all right, I'm ill-equipped for this, Lord, but you use me however you want. It's me saying, God, I can't handle what you've called me to do. It's too much. But God, you use me however you want. It's a humbling of yourself and allowing God to work through you. And this is really hard because it runs so opposed to so many messages we hear in our culture today. It's really hard to do this because of all the messages we hear. Uh, so I don't know if you've been to Starbucks the last couple months, uh, but they've got a uh, pumpkin spice latte. But they've got a uh, they've got a, they've, they've had a deal with Oprah like over the summer where on the coffee sleeves they'd have these little quotes from her, and uh, and they're just terrible, man. Like it's just like these these platitudes that just drive me nuts. You know, it's like shoot for the stars and you're gonna make it. And uh, oh, hold on one second, man. We'll get there. Perfect, thanks. And uh, anyways, and so, uh, so they drive me nuts. Uh, and, and so I was like whining about it to a friend and she, she found this thing online in which they take these sort of, and I think she, oh, it was a fine lady. Okay, she's very successful, very talented, that's great. But her sayings are just ridiculous. And so I had, I had a friend who found this website where they, they theologically correct her, her quotes. And so I just want to share a few of them with you because I think they're, they're, they're helpful. Um, so now we can do it. So this one says, the, the only courage you ever need is the courage to, and she says, live the life you want. Uh, this person scratched out and said, sacrifice the life you want. Next one. Uh, She says, be more splendid, be more extraordinary, use every moment to fill yourself up. This one says, be more humble, be more ordinary, use every moment to empty yourself. Next one. She says, know what sparks sparks the light in you, then use that light to illuminate the world. Know God sparks the light in you, then use that light to illuminate the world. The last one, I love this one. She says, your life is big, keep reaching. That's corrected to say, your life is small, keep serving. I see what I, what I love about these quotes is it actually gives us a very helpful perspective when it comes to our role in God's mission. That's actually freeing, it's actually liberating, right? Because we see Moses was set on a huge task, bigger than anything any of us will face. He was given the task to free an entire nation from slavery, like, that's a big job. Okay, that's overwhelming. But if you know the story, how much does Moses actually do? Like, not much. Like, not much. He has his brother talk for him. And then God just kind of shows up and takes care of business. God drops some plagues, and then he splits the Red Sea. I mean, I guess Moses held his arms up. Good for you. And, and, then, and then God drowns the Egyptian army. It's, it's all God. God did all these amazing things, but he chose to use Moses in a little way to set an entire nation free from slavery. And see, the same is true for us. Same is true for us. Like, like I want our church to be super effective, right? Like, I want us to reach people who don't know Jesus. Like, that is my deepest desire. That's what I wake up thinking about. And, and I want us to do work where we alleviate the suffering of those around us and those around the world. And I want people all over the world and in our community to know the gospel of Jesus. I want to have baptisms every single week, right? I would love that. And I think you all would too. 
And we should always strive for that. But what I've got to keep in mind is that God is just using us for one piece of his mission. God's using us for one piece of his mission. Now we just got to be faithful with where he's placed us. We got to be faithful with where he's called us. It's all right for us to strive for all those things. But ultimately we got to say, hey, we're, we're just this tiny people. Millions came before us. Millions are doing work right now. We're this tiny piece. Let's just be faithful where we're at. And that's the same is true for you. Be faithful where he's called you. And then sit back and watch him work. Because it happens. He does. He does things. And it happens because God not only has a mission, he not only uses us, but it happens because he's real. Right? Like this isn't some figment of our imagination, flying spaghetti monster. It happens because he's real. Look with me at verses 13 and 14. Then Moses said to God, If I come to the people of Israel and say to them, The God of your fathers has sent me to you. And they ask me, What is his name? What shall I say to them? God said to Moses, I am who I am. And he said this, Say this to the people of Israel, I am sent me to you. Now, in order to to truly understand what's going on in this conversation with, uh, oh, give me one back there, Tyler. Uh, in, in this conversation with, uh, with Moses and, and with God, we need to understand Moses' context a little bit. All right? He's living in a radically pluralistic context, a polytheistic context. Everybody's got a God. Everybody's got a pantheon of gods. Every people group has a God. And so when Moses is talking to this burning bush, he's assuming he's talking to, to the God of his people group. And so he asks him this God's name and says, you know, there's so many of these gods out there. What's, what's your name? What should I tell people you are that, that's spoken to me? And God says, oh, bro, my name? Like, you don't get it, man. My, I'm it, right? God said, I'm the God of the universe. I'm, I'm the one and only. I'm the ultimate reality. I was, I am, I will be forever. I mean, that's what God gives us his name is for those of you English majors, First of all, good luck getting a job. Secondly, he's saying it's, it's the to be verb in Hebrew. He just says, I, I am, I was, I will be. It's just the to be verb. I am the God, the real one. He says, tell everybody, I'm the end all, be all. That's it. And see, the reality is, of course, we don't live in a time that different from Moses, right? We live in a, a fairly pluralistic culture, a fairly pluralistic world. Everyone's got a God. And sure, we don't maybe bow down to pieces of wood or pieces of stone, but everybody's got a God. In his uh, infamous commencement speech, the late novelist David Foster Wallace um, uh, talked about this. He knew this, and he said this. I want to share some of this quote with you. He says, but here's something else that's weird but true. In the day-to-day trenches of adult life, there's actually no such thing as atheism. There's no such thing as not worshiping. Everybody worships. The only choice we get is what to worship. And the compelling reason for maybe choosing some sort of God or spiritual type thing to worship, be it JC or Allah, be it Yahweh or the Wiccan Mother Goddess or the Four Noble Truths or some inviolable set of ethical principles, is that pretty much anything else you worship will eat you alive. If you worship money and things, if they are where you tap real meaning in life, then you will never have enough, never feel you have enough. It's the truth. Worship your body and beauty and sexual allure, and you will always feel ugly. And when time and age start showing, you will die a million deaths before they finally grieve you. 
So David Foster Wallace says, hey, everybody worships. He's not a Christian, by the way. He says, everybody worships. And he says, so be smart in what you worship because whatever it is you end up worshiping is going to eat you alive. And he's right. What you worship eats you alive. And so in this moment, God is calling Moses into ultimate reality. He's calling Moses to worship the one God that is true, the one God that is real, the one God that if you worship him is the only thing that can sustain you. Everything else you worship will eat you alive, but this God is true. He will sustain you. He will uphold you. He will walk beside you. And so he's saying, hey, Moses, if you're going to do this task, if you're going to pursue this mission of freeing this entire nation of people, you can't just think of me as this little God that you put in your pocket when you need him. I am it. I am the God of ultimate reality. You've got to lean on me. You've got to trust in me completely because I'm real. Because I'm real. So the same is true for us. In the face of, of problems, struggles, or as you enter into God's mission, That's only done by experiencing God as the truest and deepest reality in the universe. And you say, well, how do I do that? How do I even begin to do that? That happens when you look at God in the flesh. When you experience the person of Jesus Christ. That's how it happens. Right? How do you know that God hears the cries of the suffering? How do we know that? Because some guy told you up front because it says so in a book? No, we know that because Jesus hung on the cross. Because God in the flesh suffered for us. That he took on all the pains of the world for your sake. How do you know that God will use you in his mission? Because I said so. Because you got a special feeling one day. It's not enough. It's not enough. It's because Jesus went to the cross for you. He fulfilled God's mission. And then he said, as the Father has sent me, so am I sending you. And how do we know that, that God is real, that he's present, that he actually works? Because Jesus rose from the grave. That means everything he said about himself is true. It means he conquered death. It means he validates who he says. When, when someone rises from the grave, listen to him, right? Someone comes here and says, hey, I'm God. I'm going to die for the sins of the world. I'm going to rise again three days later. And it actually happens. Pay attention, Right? What he says is true. See, this is the gospel. When you come face to face with Jesus, when you come face to face with who he is, it it frees you from anything that would enslave you. Sin, suffering, death, apathy. It frees you and then sends you out on God's mission. And so now you get to live each day in worship and praise of him and then you get to take part in his mission in little ways that actually have remarkably large impacts. Last couple of weeks, we've done a love offering. Uh, we do these from time to time uh, for a family that just had a, a fire run through their house. And um, the mother of the family recently wrote on her wall that, that they were uh, moving into a rental home. But as they were doing that, uh, she realized that uh, she, didn't, she didn't have everything she needed in their, fa- in their pantry and she needed to buy food for them. And she thought, I don't know if we'll be able to afford this at this time. But then she wrote this on her Facebook wall. But then I realized wait, I'm going to need to go grocery shopping. Not only my regular everyday grocery shopping, but the kind where you have to replace all your salt, pepper, sugar, flour, Uncle Chris's seasoning. Is that like a Texas thing? I've never heard of that. Yes? Okay, gum toes? Okay, very good. Um, Bullion cubes, olive oil, and balsamic vinegar, and all other staples that you generally keep in your pantry. She writes this. I was feeling a little panic, 
since those things can add up. Then a wave of blessings comes in the mail from Axe Church Leander. In the packet was gift cards to HEB, four of them. Enough to stock all the pantry items I need. God had them put the cards in the mail at just the right time so that when I said, Abba, I need pantry stuff, I would literally walk to my mailbox and find an envelope with the provision I would need. That's you. It's God using you in his mission. See, this stuff happens all of the time. Happens all the time. Because Jesus is real. Because Jesus is liberating. Because Jesus is in the sending business and he sent you. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I thank you for my friends who are gathered here. Thank you that you have claimed us as your own. That you've saved us through your son Jesus. God, help us to rest in that grace and, and from that grace teach us to be sent out into this world on your mission. May we proclaim the Jesus who is the great liberator, the freer of sin, the freer from death, freer from the power of the devil. Lord, teach us to look to him always. We pray this all in his name. Amen. Thank you for listening to this podcast from Axe Church in Leander, Texas. Feel free to share this message with others and stay connected with us at axechurchleander.com.